I spent the past summer living in Shanghai, where it felt like every street corner had a surveillance camera. I was surprised by how comfortable I was with them, with the idea that I was being watched. The cameras made me feel safe walking through the streets of a city with a population of 30 million, no matter how late the hour or how dark the alley. The experience made me want to ask, what makes privacy worth giving up to some people and not to others? This semester, I heard almost by chance that the Department of Homeland Security approved the implementation of 900 new CCTV cameras in Houston. That this news was so scarcely publicized in a state hardly known for trusting government felt unexpected. I reached out to someone who could tell me more. Okay, my name is Jack Hanegriff. I'm with the City of Houston Mayor's Office of Public Safety and Homeland Security, and I'm responsible for technology projects that support Homeland Security initiatives. So these cameras are part of the uh, Public Safety Video Network, uh, which was funded under the Houston Urban Area Security Initiative. And its main goal is to prevent, uh, protect, and respond against acts of terrorism. I was surprised to find that as recently as 2005, Houston had no public surveillance cameras. What were the reasons for this new demand? Well, 9-11 um, was one. Um, we had to start looking at our city infrastructure differently because um, terrorist-type people were looking at our city differently. I quickly found that Mr. Hanegriff disliked the word surveillance. Well, when you use the term surveillance, that's got a negative connotation. Sure. Okay, surveillance means we're spying, or surveillance means we're continuously uh, looking and watching. The program I work on is, uh, is what I call a verification system. It's using public space. There's no spying. There's no expectation of privacy. So it's very similar if I was standing on the street corner watching you walk down the street. What kind of society do we want to live in? Is it acceptable for all of us to go around legitimately filming each other in case someone commits wrong against us? Mr. Hanegriff seemed to think that we already are. Yeah, I think people are getting um, used to it. I heard once somewhere that you can expect to be on some camera nine times a day, yeah. uh, whether that be a personal device uh, or a security camera from a business or a public safety camera. Why still do Americans as a whole harbor such a skepticism for surveillance? We are the free country, you know, and, and we are big on our freedom. And, and it's getting to a point sometimes they even question the police, why are you stopping me? But you're, you're allowed to be, have your freedom as long as it doesn't impose on the rights of others. For a comparative perspective, I considered the status quo of surveillance in another developed country. I'm Martin Wiener. I'm a professor of history at Rice University. My specialty is British history, British Empire history. It seems that Britain has been a leader uh, certainly in the Western world, in, uh, in establishing certain kinds of public surveillance, uh, CCTV cameras uh, in public areas. Uh, there are now amazingly a uh, large number of them uh, in public areas throughout Britain. What differentiates Britain from the U.S.? Professor Wiener seemed to think it could be traced back to the two countries' vastly different experiences during World War II. Uh, Total wars, like uh, especially World War II, 
helped bring about uh, welfare state uh, extensions of, of the central government into people's lives because they got used to uh, a more active, more intrusive uh, national government during wartime. Uh, and uh, thus, they were uh, more ready to uh, accept it as a natural and beneficial part of life when, the, when peace came. He seemed to think that privacy, once lost, was not so easily expected back. If we look even further back in history, the UK has historically produced some of the most provocative philosophical theories about surveillance. Take Jeremy Bentham, for instance. Well, uh, Bentham was kind of the great founder of the school of utilitarianism, and he was a, a, came out of the Enlightenment. And he tried to take Enlightenment ideas to a kind of logical conclusion, and he believed that people's behavior was very malleable by uh, if the right kind of uh, rational manipulators. And uh, he developed a plan for a prison, uh, and this is what came to be called the panopticon. The basic setup of Bentham's panopticon is this. There's a central tower surrounded by cells arranged like spokes on a wheel. In the central tower is the watchman. In the cells are prisoners, or workers, or children, depending on the use of the building. The tower shines bright light so that the watchman is able to see everyone in the cells. The people in the cells, however, aren't able to see the watchman, and therefore have to assume that they are always under observation. Thus, pan opticon, seeing everything. So surveillance and the improvement in human beings for Bentham went together. He wasn't concerned about privacy, the right of privacy. Uh, he, he thought that was a lot of nonsense. Who needed privacy? And privacy only interfered with the improvement of the human race. The French philosopher Michel Foucault later described the prisoner of a panopticon as being at the receiving end of asymmetrical surveillance. He is seen, but he does not see. He is the object of information, never a subject in communication. To see the effects of a real-life panopticon state, I interviewed my mother, who lived in China until her mid-30s. I wanted to know, what is it like to go from a place where you felt watched to a place where you were allowed to voice your discomfort about being watched? To contextualize the way she feels about surveillance, she explained the history behind China's surveillance culture as she knows it. Here she is talking about the conditions in which the Communist Party first came to power in 1949. You know, in the 1950s, in the first year of Communist Party, um, Mao Zedong was very insecure about his power. At that time, there were actually several parties, not just the Communist Party, and Mao wanted to eliminate them. Many were sent to the countryside for forced labor, an exile that effectively silenced them for the rest of their lives. There's an old Chinese proverb in Shi Chudong. Snakes are very dangerous, right? In Shi Chudong basically means to kill the snake. You have to find a way to lure it out from its nest. So Mao asked the people who opposed him, tell me the truth, what can I do better? And then when they told their truth and their opinion, they were punished. The legacy of this story remains, and China continues to be a country where self-censorship reliably prevails. For my mother, it was a knowledge that proved hard to share. 
These pernicious effects of surveillance are exactly what Bill Brown wanted to draw attention to with his group, the Surveillance Camera Players. I'm Bill Brown. I'm a co-founder and was for a long time the director of the Surveillance Camera Players. The Surveillance Camera Players, or SCP, was formed in 1996 in New York City. For over a decade, they performed works like Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot and George Orwell's 1984 in front of surveillance cameras in public spaces like Times Square, Rockefeller Center, various subway stations. I was curious as to how the experience of performing for a camera differed from performing in front of a live audience. On a stage, your audience is obvious, visible, right in front of you. But the audience for a surveillance camera, surveillance camera performance is occult or hidden. One presumes there's somebody watching the cameras. And the placards are held up directly into the camera for the viewing of that person. Wow. So it isn't quite clear sometimes if the person is seeing the image. Often the person monitoring the camera, in front of which the SCP was performing, would come out to ask what was going on. And that actually was the whole purpose of the performance, was to get the camera watcher out from behind the booth and to confront the people he or she was watching in public without hiding in some sort of darkened room. So there's a couple of videotapes of security guards or police officers interrogating us while the play is still going on. And that was the point, which is instead of us being pulled into their theater, we pulled them into ours. I wanted to know, how did Bill think about the balance between security and privacy that Jack Hanegriff from Houston had talked about? People who are willing to sacrifice liberty for the sake of security deserve neither. Bill believes that privacy rights should be unconditional and that the idea of needing to balance privacy and security is, as he calls it, blackmail logic. These days, Bill is not so sure the surveillance camera players is the most relevant way of fighting for privacy. Surveillance itself is shifted now into the digital realm. It includes cameras, but it's gotten incredibly wide and broad. Mm. And because of that, I think this, this subject becomes very hard for people to get a grip on. Yes. Uh, that they realize that everything they do is now being watched and sucked up, and that's much bigger phenomenon. Things get to be so widespread, people increasingly have the attitude, there's nothing I can do about it. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it was a little more clear that people could do something about the physical presence of cameras on the streets. But these days, it becomes quite a conundrum to know what is it, to, what can you do about having your, all your data harvested through your cell phone, through your Yahoo account, your Facebook account, because as you mentioned, alluded to the choices either on social media or you're not. Mm -hmm. And most people say, well, I, I need to be able to buy things online, therefore I grudgingly give up my privacy. Because it's no longer do you walk in front of a camera in public, which may or may not be captured by a camera, but if you want a cell phone, everything you do is being captured automatically. So that the terrain has shifted and gotten incredibly broad. Mm. And it's very hard to figure out what to do in that sort of environment. In many ways, the cameras fastened to our buildings, those purposely visible machines with human eyes hidden from view, 
were an obvious parallel to the watchtower at the center of the Panopticon. But what happens when you step into the world of digital surveillance and data capture? Are we still objects of information when we choose devices that record our heart rate while we sleep, track our position using GPS, anticipate our intended text based off of records of past mistakes? A bright light is once again being thrown on our bodies, this time not from the central tower, but from the screens we choose to turn on.